This week on the show, we're showing you how to achieve RPO and RTO objectives with ZFS part one, the FreeBSD Foundation's quarter two reports, the OpenBSD full tour setup by Celine, the MyBee Beehive as a private cloud solution, the FreeBSD home file server expansion, Evergreen keeping more disks at home, OpenBSD on framework laptop, interesting enough, and how portable Galley is to other operating systems and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 417, Beehive Private Cloud, recorded August 11, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for the truly paranoids. Check out tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for more information. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode with fresh content from the BSD world and beyond. Uh, here we have another article by Clara Systems, Achieving RPO slash RTO Objectives with ZFS. This is a two-parter. Yeah, uh, so the first part is out, and mostly, so your RPO is your recovery point objective, which is if there's a disaster and I have to restore from my recovery system, how old is that backup, right? Uh, you know, if you take a backup once a day uh, and you do that at midnight, um, then if you crash, on Friday at 5 p.m., uh, you're going all the way back to, you've lost everything from that day, basically, uh, and so on. Or if you only do backups on Sundays, then you're going back to last week and a whole week is gone. And then <laughs> you have your recovery time objective, which is how long is it going to take you to get back on, you know, get that backup restored and get going with it. Uh, you know, some, uh, depending on your backup system, that could take a number of days to restore all the data from backup and so on. And so this article talks about how you can do this with ZFS, where you can have recovery point objectives where you take a snapshot every 15 minutes or something to that effect, and a recovery time objective being, you know, we can go to 15 minutes before the disaster within an hour or two of when the disaster happened or whatever. Uh, you know, uh, in the article, Jim talks about how to do this with replication to an offsite data center or whatever, where you can just get everything uh, position to run off the backup directly and basically a warm spare type setup uh, or whatever. Uh, but it walks through all the details of that uh, and is just a really useful way to build on uh, the stuff we've been learning about snapshots through this series of articles. Oh yeah, it walks you through the um, steps to well, first of all create a snapshot in the first place and then um, using send and receive to uh, transfer it either locally or to another pool on another system. Right, and doing the incrementals and looking at how much data changes per hour and will your remote system be able to keep up with that? Like if you're backing up to a server in the same rack, then you know you can probably get quite high speed between the two. But if you're backing up you know, over your business, your small business's DSL line to uh, a data center or something, you might not be able to uh, always keep up with those. And you know, you'll replicate and you'll catch up overnight and it means that you know, you might be a couple more hours behind or whatever, but it sure beats a backup that involves, you know, stand up a whole new blank computer and restore the backup to it. And it takes three days and, and the backup is, is eight days old, uh, yeah. versus ZFS, you know, if, if it's just some data accidentally got deleted or whatever, you can recover that one file from a snapshot. Uh, and then, you know, your recovery 
point there is 15 minutes and your time is one minute. Uh, or if it's you got hit with ransomware, you know, ZFS roll back to the data set from three hours ago. Uh, you know, you have nice, uh, you know, your RPO is well, three hours then, but your RTO is one second or however long it takes you to log into the box and run the rollback command. Uh, or, you know, it could be failing over to a different data center or a different machine and so on. Anyway, it's all in the article. Definitely worth checking out. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, then we have the FreeBSD Foundation second quarter report. So that's where they list all the things that happened in the second quarter in the foundation, which may not be so visible. That's why they do these. And they um, are written as part of the FreeBSD project second quarter 2021 status report, which also appeared. But this one is separate or at least uh, linked to it so that um, this larger text gets, um, well, a bit more <laughs> focus. So, of course, uh, the foundation was also hit by COVID-19, like pretty much any other organization. Uh, but the team continued to work from home. The temporary ban on travel for the staff members remains still in effect, but continues to not affect our output too much since most conferences are still vital, they write. As the world continues to open up, we will reevaluate the travel ban and continue supporting the community and project through our regular channels. They have a section on partnerships and commercial user support. We help facilitate collaboration between commercial and FreeBSD developers. We also meet with companies to discuss their needs and bring that information back to the project. Our temporary travel ban stayed in effect during the second quarter, so we continued meeting with corporate users virtually. If things look good for in-person meetings in the fall, then we'll start incorporating those into an in-person and virtual meeting mix. The fundraising efforts, that's probably what's interesting for most people because that's the, the way that you can support the FreeBSD Foundation. Uh, first, we'd like to say thank you to everyone who has given us a financial contribution this year. Last quarter, we raised 70,410 uh, US dollars, which includes donations from organizations like VeriSign, VMware, and StormShield, as well as many individuals. Uh, this is important because many individuals, um, do individual donations are needed to get the actual um, foundation status, not just from uh, big corporate sponsors. So the mix of both is uh, ideal, which we which we got. So thanks for that. Uh, that's what I say as <laughs> vice president in my role here. So let's switch back to BSD moderator for for now. Uh, we depend on these donations to fund our work supporting FreeBSD. Uh, late last year, we decided to put more funding into helping to improve FreeBSD and hired a senior software developer to work on ARM64 and a project coordinator to manage our projects and interface with the community. We also hired two of our part-time software developers full-time. The purpose of this was to provide more resources to step in to implement and improve major features in FreeBSD, review patches and bug reports, implement bug fixes, and support these security efforts. And then there's the list of OS improvements. During the second quarter, the foundation staff and grant recipients committed 348 individual source tree changes, 19 ports tree changes, and 11 doc tree changes, which represents about 40% of source commits, which identify a sponsor uh, or the foundation in, in this regard. For ports commits, 15% and in docs, 18 Foundation staff and grant recipients also contributed to a number of third-party projects. Uh, the notable ones are LLVM projects, the LLDB debugger, and the Syscaller code coverage guided system called Fuzzer, which is also used in other projects. Um, 
there's a list of improvements that the foundation uh, quarterly reports also include. Smaller projects and improvements include the implementation of on-demand core dump generation by the kernel via the ptrace, pt underscore core dump functionality. Then there's a general kernel debugging improvements area. They remove also obsolete kernel MC or mcount profiling, nullfs and tempfs bug fixes, libc cleanups and improvements, RTL D, D error, and thread local variable fixes. Those were reported by Julia developers. KQ and POSIX timer fixes, UFS bug fixes, capsicum socket operation improvements, a whole list of many other things. So all these were made possible by donations and the people we keep on staff through those. Then there's continuous integration and quality assurance. Uh, the foundation provides a full-time staff member and funds projects on improving continuous integration, automated testing, and overall quality assurance efforts for the FreeBSD project. And during the second quarter, work on pre-commit tests and building and release artifacts in the CI environment continued. A uh, project using the NetPerf cluster to do our network-related CI jobs is being planned. Then they're supporting the FreeBSD infrastructure section. The foundation provides hardware and support to improve the FreeBSD infrastructure. In last quarter, we supported the test cluster at Semtex, purchased a few needed parts for infrastructure in general, and started working with the cluster admin team on a more efficient and improved hardware request and purchase process. Of course, you also hear a lot uh, from our advocacy and education and outreach programs. Uh, this is a large part of our efforts, which are dedicated to advocating for the project. Uh, this includes promoting work being done like the one above or others uh, with FreeBSD, producing advocacy literature, uh, teaching people about FreeBSD and make sure that uh, starting FreeBSD is easy enough for people who are new or contributing to the project who are a bit more experienced, uh, I would say. Uh, there's a couple of things listed here as advocacy efforts. Um, of course, since no conferences uh, in presence are currently happening, we uh, usually try to uh, go into the online ones, um, which is also a bit new for pretty much uh, everyone involved. But we uh, did a couple of things here. Uh, we participated, for example, in an industry partner for the USNICS LISA uh, 21 org conference. Uh, we held two new FreeBSD Fridays, an introduction to Bastille BSD and how to submit a patch to FreeBSD. Uh, we organized content and promoted FreeBSD Day and helped organize and run the June 2021 FreeBSD Developer Summit, which videos uh, are now posted on the FreeBSD Wiki. Many more in the article uh, about the activities that the FreeBSD Foundation did. And if you like those efforts and want them to continue, then consider donating to the FreeBSD Foundation. Next up, we have an OpenBSD full tour set up for you in how to, to get you going in the tour direction. Over on uh, Celine's site at the dataswamp.org. Uh, if for some reason you want to block all your traffic except for traffic that transits through Tor, here's how to do that on OpenBSD. The setup is simple and consists of installing Tor, running the service, and configuring a firewall to block every request that doesn't actually go from the underscore Tor user, which is used by the Tor daemon. So they uh, set skip on the loopback interface to avoid blocking that. And then they block all outbound traffic uh, and they uh, block return traffic as well. And then they allow out on the egress port uh, any TCP connection that comes from the user underscore Tor, uh, which will allow Tor to make the outbound connections, but not anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, so then they just package add Tor, uh, enable it, start it, and uh, have PF load that config. 
All right. This will configure uh, when you run Tor, it runs a SOX5 proxy on localhost on port 9050. Uh, and so if you just configure your programs to use that proxy, uh, then they will go out through Tor and be good to go. Uh, they do say, please consider that if you are using DHCP to obtain an IP address on the network, the host name of your machine is shared and as well as the Mac. Those are broadcast out on the network every time you're looking for an address. As for the MAC address, you can configure uh, the LL adder random, so link local address random, in your network uh, interface config file to make OpenBSD pick a new random MAC every time so that your machine isn't as identifiable. As for the host name, uh, I didn't test it, but this should work. You can rewrite your etc my name file uh, so it has uh, a different name. They uh, used the uh, user share misc airports file as a source of random names <laughs> <laughs> well, that's random enough <laughs> at least yep, so they those. sort it randomly and then grab the top one off the list and uh change their machine name every uh boot or every time they run the script <laughs> basically the script will pick a random name out of the 2000 plus entries in the airport list which is a list of every airport uh some openbsd developer has ever been to oh yeah and that's 2000 entries so dude lists some potential issues the only issue I can imagine right now is connecting to a network with a captive portal to reach the internet, and you'd need to, you know, do the captive portal before Tor would be able to connect to anything. Um, you would have to disable the PF rule or all of PF at the risk of some programs leaking data until you finish uh, doing the capture portal and re-enable PF. If you prefer to use I2P only to reach uh, internal services, replace the underscore Tor user with the underscore I2P user or I2PD in your uh, pf.conf rule, depending on which implementation you've used. Uh, conclusion, I'm not a huge Tor user, but for people who need to be sure that their non-Tor traffic doesn't leak out of the network, this is a simple setup to do that. Mm. Yeah, straightforward. Yeah, I remember back in the day, so we're talking almost 20 years ago, uh, using IPFW count rules for each different user to tell which users were using up all the bandwidth on a server. Yeah, who's the culprit? Yeah, uh, but you Who can do the that? same thing to block traffic as well. Yeah, only by that, just this user can't get to the internet. The other ones are fine. <laughs> you can really mess with people this way. Um, <laughs> yeah, and with, the, with a couple of lines in PFConf, you can definitely uh, achieve that. Here goes our news roundup for this week. We have found MyB, FreeBSD operating system and hypervisor Beehive as private cloud. Uh, so this is over at habr.com. Um, so this article is aimed to describe the FreeBSD as a platform to launch cloud guest operating systems with simple API capabilities using MyB and DevOps uh, they really like. Introduction reads, time to time I've thought, hmm, do I become rarted? And my hands are trying to check out current job positions with some fresh or exotic approaches and tools, which are not completely hackneyed. But during scrolling lists of companies with their DevOps positions, I face a simple picture. Names of companies are changing. Technology stack stays completely same board Linux. OpenStack, Docker, Kubernetes, OpenShift, GitLab, Ansible, Terraform with minor variations. Products of tech companies with huge investments and marketing budget. This set of tools, uh, which... Uh, with which anyone will recognize who's working in DevOps field for the last two to three years, the last of alternative solutions leads to professional burnout. Work causes a feeling of disgust 
disgust, fatigue, and loss of motivation from repetitive activities. Oh yeah, I see where this is. Uh, yeah, uh, I yeah been there, done that. This is okay if you're not a real IT geek, but it's not acceptable if information technology is not only a day job, but also a hobby and makes you happy. In this case, you do not pay attention on how this or that piece of code is called, whether it's in trend or not, what anonymous writes and thinks about it. It is way more interesting to try yourself, get acquainted with the code, the services, or architecture. And if you have a specific problem that the product is focused on, try to solve that problem. Um, such dissatisfaction is partially offset by experiments outside of working hours and participation in various non-upstream, little-known and marginal projects. For example, if we talk about the operating system, it is always interesting to experiment with Minix, ReactOS, SmartOS, Colibri OS, Minoka OS. Haiku, and others. Distributions of the BSD family occupy a special niche. They're not only up-to-date, which means that developers quickly close vulnerabilities in such, uh, if such are found. Drivers are released on a regular basis, ensuring the operation of systems on new equipment. If some of the aforementioned operating systems will work only in VirtualBox, then with BSD systems, you can take a break with Linux and play with bare metal. Uh, so in addition, these systems are quite clean in terms of clutter. There is no overabundance of the functionality of the basic mandatory components. They do not have the constant deprecation cycle of every single component. Leapfrog when every year, instead of updating one utility, it is replaced by another, completely incompatible with the previous one. Commitment to tradition and adherence to the KISS principle, keep it simple, uh, is highly valued to hotheads who or by hotheads who bring uh, any service to industrial operation on BSD platforms in a set and forget style. So say, therefore, for my own purposes, I used a dedicated server running FreeBSD uh, in which the cloud virtual machines are based on the Beehive hypervisor, uh, which is launched via the CBSD utility. And they talk a little bit about the history of Beehive, but they look at it this way. This is, I was looking for a system which was free and without annoying I'm free, but still get a paid subscription, uh, or you'll have to click this button all the time. He was looking for transparency, not requiring additional actions uh, for scaling or multiple physical hosts, uh, having some kind of basic role-based access control to separate the, your VMs for strangers and so on. Required the availability of some kind of API. Yes, many projects have very nice and sprawling UIs. However, this certainly you know, doesn't give you the same control as an API where you can build tools to do things in an automated fashion. And they wanted something ZFS-based with ZFS snapshots because they don't know anything better than ZFS snapshot versus you know, trying to do snapshots in a, of a QCAL file and sync them out to S3 or something complicated. Yeah, yeah, it has a lot of uh, interesting points there uh, with conclusions. And so then it gets into the MyB um, namesake of this article. Uh, so welcome MyB, may, may, MyB, MyB. As a side effect and a bonus, uh, as well as to get acquainted with the work of the Beehive hypervisor for people who are far from FreeBSD, the work was framed as a separate distribution kit called MyB. For work with it, it all uh, you need is curl, but there's also a thin client. Perhaps someone will find this work useful for themselves. So what can MyB do? Um, once you install it with curl and JQ uh, for more readable JSON responses, after installing MyB on the server, open the IP address of the host in the browser for general information on the possibilities. In the base installation, there are links to the following virtual machine images. So there's the CentOS uh, 7 and 8, Ubuntu, Debian, FreeBSD in UFS and ZFS versions, FreeBSD 13 that is, OpenBSD and NetBSD. So OpenBSD 6 and NetBSD 9. And there's a description then, um, what kind of you know memory size and how many CPUs and what kind of image, public keys and such. 
and it seems like you can quickly run those and set them up, multiple of those even, uh, using my B. Oh, nice. I should check this out a little bit further <laughs> off air. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. like an interesting tool. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, a little cherry on top of the cake. If you're using a FreeBSD environment, using the same API method, you can also create uh, jails. Uh, just type, set the type to jail instead of uh, Beehive. And because CBSD does both, the backend will uh, spin up jails as well. Ah. So it's more cloudy this way? Cloud-like? Well, whatever that is. One uh, API and so on that does uh, both. Mm, oh, yeah, I see. Okay, nice. Always good to get this kind of uh, extra stuff people build around the base system utilities. Next up, we have an article by Rubenert. Uh, uh, expanding our FreeBSD home file server. Uh, Ruben writes, this is what I'd call a thinking out loud about personal circumstances post rather than anything prescriptive or useful for discerning computators general. You've been warned. Uh, so Clara and I are running low on disk space on our OpenZFS file server. Once again, we have a running joke that drive a jet on <laughs> seems to rear its fragmented head every August. Maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, though it's files uh, do uh, yeah files doing all the filling of these implausibly fast spinning platters of metal. Someone made a disk as enemy? Um, our FreeBSD server is the center of our world. It uses a combination of NetBSD and Debian VMs running in Zen to be replaced with Beehive at some point, and FreeBSD jails to serve and delegate anything we can offload from our personal and work machines. I have other boxes for tinkering and testing, but this one runs the latest release with an unexotic uh, configuration as it can get. Vim is saying unexotic. Unexotic isn't a word, it's probably right. Well, you just invented one. Uh, my attitude for at least the last six years or possibly longer has been to buy a pair of the largest drives I can afford and to cycle out the oldest pair. 2019 was the year I finally said goodbye to a pair of HGST 3 terabyte units that had performed flawlessly for almost a decade. There's now an antistatic bags in the safe deposit box acting as a cold backup for most critical family photos and documents. Oh yeah, don't lose those. Uh, there's a thought there that I haven't had to replace a hard drive due to outright failure in my or in a long time, but I dare not to mention it there lest I invoke the wrath of Murphy's Law. Good thing I didn't. Here's the thing. The time I'm not faced with, a f- uh, with the same space or chipset constraints, so I could add more drives instead of swapping. Last year, I placed our workhorse HPE microserver with a refurbished supermicro workstation board with eight times or eight SATA and two NVMe, albeit uh, one of the PCIe uh, is a daughter board, and an old Antec 300 case with eight LFF drive base. I've been considered getting an additional RAID controller, provided I could use it in JBot mode for ZFS. That was an un conscionable number of abbreviations and acronyms and i'm not even a network engineer whoa right you could argue the timing is great chia has driven up the cost of drives meaning this year i won't be getting as much of the capacity jump as i have in previous years granted going from four to ten would be nice but it's still only six terabytes of effective extra space for many hundreds of dollars 
Yeah, not to mention that I insist on using ZFS mirrors for redundancy and ease of replacements and upgrades. Adding drives instead will give me all the extra capacity, right? Uh, it all makes sense, but my main concerns are still noise and heat. Clara and I live in a one-bedroom apartment now, which is much nicer than sleeping in a studio, while the computer in the other end of the room loudly seeks and scrubs its ZFS pools on a recurring basis. Uh, but we work from home now, and I have experience with specific Western Digital drives in my bedroom, growing up that I don't want to inadvertently repeat. Uh, I'd likely tolerate it, but it's not fair to Clara having something clicking and buzzing away with earshot, uh, within earshot all day. Uh, we've lucked out thus far with our current HGST, Western Digitals and Seagates. The read-write heads of the SSDs are also so silent uh, as to be practically non-existent. <laughs> but I've read reviews of current larger drives of people uh, complaining about noise. The Western Digital Golds and Toshibas uh, seem to be frequently the cause of that. Uh, this post was an open-ended as the bag of uh, kettle chips I regret eating. Maybe I need to do some acoustic research. Alan, what's your drive uh, buying experience uh, last year? Well, I put mine in a separate room in my basement and closed the door so I don't have to listen to them. Right. But, <laughs> That's um, the... Uh, the noise we problem. have quite a mix of Seagates, Toshibas, and the Hitachi, the HDSTs. I don't have many Western Digitals, although HDST is owned by Western Digital now, so it's, yeah. Mm. Um, I remember in college having some, I think, 200 gigabyte drives from Western Digital. The noise, I didn't notice, but the person in the next room did, and uh, who was my friend who ran a computer store, and uh, so he harangued me to buy new hard drives just to get rid of the noisy ones. <laughs> Couldn't you just get earplugs or something? Well, it was when he was trying to sleep that he would notice it. Oh, yeah. When the rest of the house is quiet is when you suddenly pick up those noises that you don't hear all day. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, if you have the extra drive slots, adding more drives does let you get more space uh, for that amount of money, especially with the Chia thing going on right now, or Chai or whatever it's called. Uh driving up the prices i don't know if that's still quite as bad as it was a couple of months ago uh but i do know that trying to buy discs uh was getting annoying for a while there and i was mostly glad that uh i bought some spares all at once to save on shipping uh says when i came down to needing them uh having a long delay time would have been very inconvenient oh yeah if you need to drive they need to be there not oh but, they're on yeah. back order in general i definitely approve of your strategy i've uh forced that strategy on some other people uh you know when they had 12 drive bay slots and they want to do like two raid zeds or something uh to try to get the most space i'm like no you're going to use mirrors of two drives each and then when you run out of space you will buy whatever the most cost efficient drives are that at that point and replace the smallest two drives in the mirror with these bigger ones one at a time uh and then when that's done you do the next one. And over time, you will cycle out all yeah. the small drives for bigger drives and you'll keep growing and you'll be able to do that by buying two hard drives at a time. Uh, if you have to buy six or 12 drives at a time, your your wallet is going to cry uh, and you might not be able to do it and that's not going to work for you. So by forcing you to do, be able to do it, you know, it's less space efficient to do with the mirrors, but it means you can do two drives at a time, which is a lot easier to swallow. Mm. You will thank Alan later. Okay. Um, if you have some special disc buying strategies, we would be happy to know about it. Uh, send us to feedback at bsdnow.tv. It would be interesting to compare notes here. Uh, next thing we have is OpenBSD on the Framework laptop. Yeah, I'm interested to see this. As uh, I heard about it on uh, another podcast, 
So basically, it's a, a laptop that actually has some modularity to it so that you can decide what ports or components you actually have. And so from the photo here, it looks like it basically has four module slots that are each looks like a USB-C-like connector. Uh, and uh, from people I've talked to that have played with these, uh, they're very solidly built. They, they don't feel cheap or crinkly, and like the modules lock into place so they're not like loose or rattly and vibrating or anything. So it seems like a really nice laptop, especially for uh, the type of people that run BSD on stuff, uh, because you can swap out the components and decide what, what ports you want and which ones you don't. Okay. This should be Apple, right, in the extensibility department, but yeah. <laughs> well, basically... Uh, when I was talking about it, it's it a bit kind of like my Mac, where you know it's got some USB-C ports, and I have to put this giant dongle on the side mm. of all the stuff. Except for they made the dongles recess, so they slide in, and you don't, it doesn't look like you have a bunch of dongles yeah. hanging off of your laptop. <laughs> so they one-upped Apple on the whole uh, concept of making a nice laptop but still having the yeah. modularity. So it's cool. Very nice. Uh, so about the hardware, they say, while many classic ThinkPad owners will probably say, so what, to be, uh, you know, repairable and upgradable laptops, doing so with an Ultrabook-style thin and light laptop in 2021 is fairly novel. Uh, you know, my first question was, is it thick enough to have a, an Ethernet port? And the answer was no. But, you know, I understand wanting a thin and light laptop. I used to not understand wanting a thin and light laptop. Uh, but now I understand wanting a thin and light laptop. Uh, anyway. Each new ThinkPad I've used lately has become less and less repairable and upgradable. I know, um, I think at the X280 and later, the battery's not hot swappable. It's still serviceable. You just have to tear the laptop apart to replace the battery, whereas I can just flip a switch and disconnect my battery right now. So I agree that the ThinkPads have been getting less and less repairable and upgradable, uh, especially with like soldered in Wi-Fi and things like, or, you know, uh, BIOS blacklists and so on, make sure that uh, it can't put in whatever Wi-Fi chip I want. So the answer might be this framework laptop. Uh, it becomes available for pre-order uh, back in May uh, and offered in two configurations, uh, uh, basically a pre-built option or a do-it-yourself option uh, that you can buy even without RAM and so on and uh, provide your own SSD, Wi-Fi, uh, Windows license and so on. Uh, for both configurations, you get the same 13.5 inch 3 to 2 aspect ratio screen and your choice of various Intel CPU options. Uh, is it Joshua? What's the guy's name? Again? Yes, yes, Joshua yeah. opted for the i7-1185G7, although in rest effects, it's not really sure why. <laughs> I usually choose the i5 for better battery life and lower heat output, since most of what I do is not that CPU intensive. But perhaps in a rush to place a pre-order, I've wanted the bigger CPU. So the laptop weighs 2.8 pounds and is 11.6 inches wide and 9 inches tall and 0.6 inches thick. It was basically uh, two USB-C ports on each side, although they are recessed about one and a half inches in to accommodate the expansion cards that slot into those dongle slots. Uh, so basically, the, the various dongles you'd have, uh, USB-C dongles you'd see on like a MacBook or even my ThinkPad, except for in a specific form factor that's recessed in so that they don't hang off mm. of your laptop, which I think is oh, a really yeah. nice idea. Not soldered in. Uh, so they offer default ones for USB-C ports, USB-A ports, HDMI, DisplayPort, uh, a microSD card reader, uh, 250 gig or one terabyte storage devices, and so on. Currently, all the cards desired must be purchased with the laptop at the time of ordering, uh, but eventually they'll be for sale separately as well. 
In between the two expansion slots on the left side is an LED to indicate the charge status and a three and a half inch uh, headphone jack. On the right side of the laptop is another LED for charging, if charging it via the USB-C connector on that side. Uh, there are two downward firing speakers and an exhaust fan on the bottom. Uh, the speakers sound excellent and have a sufficient amount of bass, but not overpowering like in the MacBook Air. The fan is inaudible at idle, but can get very loud uh, when it gets up to full speed when you're doing you know, compiling and things of that nature. Uh, or even just uh, disk activity as well, because it heats up the NVMe uh, when you're doing like a Git clone and so on. It makes a little uh, click squeak when you first turn it on, and in some cases can come on and turn off every few seconds, which makes it kind of annoying uh, in a very quiet room. But there's no audible coil whine or any of the other uh, things people don't like. The keyboard deck has a power button with integrated fingerprint reader on the upper right corner. Unfortunately, it also contains a white LED ring around it, which just can be very bright and does not dim with the uh, keyboard backlight, nor does it turn off when the fingerprint reader is disabled in the BIOS. Uh, since the button is so close to the screen, it, uh, means it remains in your field of view, which is very annoying when you're sitting in a dark room. Uh, Framework has confirmed that the light is controllable via their uh, chip and that it could be disabled or dimmed in a firmware update. So not a fatal problem. The keyboard has 1.5 millimeter of uh, key travel uh, and is pronounced but uh, quiet tactile feel, which sounds good. It reminds me of the MacBook Pro from 2015, but with slightly more tactile feel. They do wish the arrow keys were inverted uh, in the T-shape. However, uh, the keyboard has three levels of backlight plus off, and that's adjustable with just using the function key in space, the same shortcut as on a ThinkPad. Uh, so the 13.5 inch non-touch screen has a 3 to 2 aspect ratio, meaning you get 2256 by 1504 as your resolution, which is high enough to use 1.5 scaling uh, without a problem. And it's reportedly greater than 400 nits of brightness, and most of the time in my office I was using it at about 30% of the brightness, so it has lots of range there. Uh, the screen lid is quite bendy and has a lot of wobble on its hinges, although the hinge itself doesn't seem to wobble and is quite tight. It means that it doesn't... Uh, wobble in response to typing or anything, so that's good, uh, or moving things on the desk, which is what I was concerned about, but does wobble excessively when making screen angle adjustments. So, you know, it's a little fiddly to get it exactly the angle you want. Uh, the screen bezel is sufficiently thin, uh, but still has enough room for a 1080p webcam with a physical cutoff switch, uh, showing a red stripe when it's disabled, next to the microphone, which has its own uh, hardware cutoff switch as well. The bezel is held, uh, magnetically to make it easier to update and change. If you're wondering, uh, like I was, the square to the left of the ambient light sensor, though it's not exposed uh, there, is one of the, uh, is the camera and not, there's no Windows Hello infrared camera or anything like that. It also has a Windows Precision touchpad made by a company called PixArt. Its surface is not quite as smooth as I would like, but not bad. Although the click mechanism is somewhat loud and hollow sounding, which makes it sound cheap. Anyway, it goes into the assembly. You can actually see here how they put it all together and they have slots labeled for, you know, this is where you put the memory and, and the NVMe and all that. And uh, it looks like each of the parts also has a QR code or each of the slots has a QR code to explain how to install stuff, which seems like a really nice idea. Even, you know, just to save you flipping to the right page in the manual of just being able to grab the QR code and end up at the right documentation. Uh, so looking at the uh, expansion cards, uh, Josh originally installed the USB-C and USB expansion cards on the left side, a USB-C and a one terabyte storage card on the right, uh, which he used for backups. I like that expansion cards keep the ports uh, a good distance from each other, 
and that can be the USB C charging port can be on either side. I've often run into problems with two USB ports on my MacBook Air being too close together. Uh, and then, you know, if you're charging, you can't use the other one and so on. Uh, the framework has an expansion card uh, developer program to support third-party expansion cards as well. Uh, those will be, they're making available schematics, case designs, and all that stuff. Uh, so it'll be interesting. Uh, it talks a little bit about the firmware. Uh, for the battery, he says, I don't usually publish battery life estimates for laptops because power usage on modern laptops varies so wildly with screen brightness and CPU load that, uh, and with the turbo stuff that it can't, doesn't make any sense. But the framework laptop has a 55 watt hour battery and it idles around nine watts with the screen at 25% brightness and connected to the Wi-Fi. Then he has a whole log about getting it to work on uh, OpenBSD. The current status is that the audio works, the battery works, the Bluetooth doesn't, fingerprint sensor works, uh, the keyboard backlight works, Hibernate works, microcard, micro SD card works, SSD, suspend, resume, touchpad, USB, video, webcam, and wireless all work. Uh, so in conclusion, sounds like a really nice oh, laptop. Yeah. And they really hope this expansion card idea takes off and third-party developers make some really interesting things. Mm, not if they can fiddle with components again. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, they have. he has a great picture here where you just take the back off the laptop and you can access all the components and they're all standard and you can swap in whatever you want. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not just that it is repairable, it's that it was designed to be repairable. You can just tell from... Like they thought from the like the documentation and, and practical side of being comparable even, uh, which I think ends up making a big difference on why this is uh, so oh, yeah. interesting. Especially for the devices that you already have and just can't use anymore with newer machines like this. But this one allows you. Very great. Then we have an article about a portable jelly, um, uh, which is a portable version of Gelly on GNU Linux uh, with write support even. Uh, the article starts with, although most of my works are properties of the companies I've worked for, this repository is one of my recent personal projects I'm actually proud of. The portable Gelly project. Uh, Gelly is FreeBSD's cryptography framework technology. It consists of the kernel side, which controls the actual encryption and decryption blocks of data and the user space side, which gives the user the ability to control various aspects of the cryptography, such as defining keys, choosing encryption algorithms, and so on. The primary goal of this project is to make it possible to attach Gally encrypted block devices on other operating systems, just as, such as new GNU Linux, while being 100% compatible with the FreeBSD implementation. Currently, only the GNU Linux is supported, but support for other operating systems, such as OpenBSD, the daily operating system of mine, is already under serious consideration. Also, I'm planning to add Gally support to the Linux kernel, but that work has not started yet. And I'm not quite sure if it's acceptable to upstream projects uh, maintainers. Yeah, like um, if you're interested in Gally, this uh, post is interesting just because it actually digs into how Gally works and like what the on-disk format looks like and so on. So it's, you know, basically he had to learn how Gally works on the inside in order to make his own version of it. Uh, and in doing so, he wrote it all down with nice diagrams. Uh, as someone who's, you know, dug through the code and learned all this stuff myself, uh, for making the Gelly boot, uh, stuff to be able to boot from Gelly encrypted disks, I thought of very similar thing as like, you know, Gelly is such an elegant design and so straightforward that it wouldn't be hard to make a user space version of it so that people could at least say mount a, a Gelly encrypted USB stick from Linux. So I'm very glad somebody uh, finally went and did that. So I didn't mm. have to, because I don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's very detailed and uh, code-centric, so it's kind of difficult to read here. But check out the article. It's definitely worth uh, looking at the diagrams. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarstamp. Head over to tarstamp.com slash bsdnow and start backing up your machine. So Tarstamp was designed originally uh, because Colin wanted to back up his laptop even while he was on the road. The problem with backing up your laptop on the road with traditional backups is that A, you don't necessarily trust the network you're connected to to be backing up your sensitive data, and B, only have you know access to the free Wi-Fi or whatever. You can't upload a lot of data. So Tarstamp is designed to segment and deduplicate your data locally uh, and then compress it to make as little uh, amount of data as possible that contains all the changes since your last backup and ship those off to Tarsnap. And it encrypts them all with the keys that you provide on your machine uh, so that nobody's sniffing on the network and nobody uh, who takes over Tarsnap servers in the cloud or you know uh, arrests Colin and tries to force him to do stuff can ever read your, your files because only you have the key. So, you know, it's a feature that you can, if you lose the key on purpose, uh, none of that data can ever be restored. So don't lose the key by accident because you're in the same situation as if you did it on purpose, the data is useless. Uh, but that's a feature, right? It's the only way to be paranoid and sure that no one else can read your backup is that this is the only key that can decrypt this backup and I have to not lose it. And I have to not let anybody else have it. And that's all there is to it. And uh, Tarsnap will be secure. Um, and they give you the source code for the client so you can prove that it does exactly uh, what they say it does. And you can compile it yourself, but you don't have to. It's available in the package manager of literally every OS uh, that we could think of. Uh, and it's very portable code if there's some OS we couldn't think of. And the best part is it's pay as you go. So you put in money and you start doing backups uh, and you get alerts when you're running out of money. Uh, you can never get uh, a bill from Tarstamp. All you get is a tax receipt. Uh, if you had to, if you're Canadian, you have to pay sales tax, but it comes as part of the deposit. But it means unlike other cloud providers, you can't get a surprise bill when you backed up more than you thought you were going to or something. Uh, Tarsnap will never use more money than you put into it. Uh, and therefore you always have that control over how much money gets spent on your backups. Yep. That's why we love Tarsnap and use it ourselves. Uh, the number one rule with Tarsnap is start using it. Yeah. <laughs> And then it's just working in the background. It can't help you if you don't use it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we have, of course, feedback and questions for you. Uh, if you have questions for us, then send those to feedback at bsdnow.tv, like the people we cover here. First one is Chunky Pie with a ZFS question. And Chunky writes, Benedict and Alan, although I'm an exclusive Linux user, I have not delved into BSD. Uh, I love your show and above all the podcasts I listen to, the rest of Linux content based, uh, none can compare to the technical knowledge of your podcast that your podcast delivers. Thank you. Oh, wow. Uh, that's uh, nice praise from you. Very specific. Thank you. Um, I have ZFS on my host machine and used libvirt to create a libvirt storage pool and a volume backed by ZFS that I used as a disk on my Samba VM. The virtual disk is then used to provide the Samba share on my network. My problem is that Zvol uh, has consumed all the space on the physical ZFS host disks, so I added another VDEV to the ZFS pool. However, that, additions, or that additional space is not reflected on the libvirt volume. 
My research has indicated that I need to grow that volume. However, when I try Verus uh, uh, H, uh, dash resize the volume name and then the storage pool, I receive the following error. This function is not supported by the connection driver. Storage pool does not support changing of volume capacity. My questions. How can I get the existing libvirt volume, the CVOL, to reflect the new capacity on the ZFS pool? Right. So you can change the size of a ZVOL with ZFS set vol size equals the new size. Be very careful when doing this. If you set the size smaller, it will delete all the data in the the shrunk the part that you shrunk the ZVOL on. But if you make it bigger, it will just make that new space available. I don't know much about libvirt and its volume management stuff of what is inside that. Like if the ZVOL is being passed directly into the guest, uh, then you'll just have to do the normal thing you do inside the guest to resize uh, inside there. But I'm guessing by the fact that there's this vol resize command in uh, the libvirt tool that it has formatted the drive, the ZVOL in some way and then is parceling it out. Uh, so I don't know for sure. But in general, uh, it's easy to change the size of a ZVOL uh, in fact, too easy to accidentally make it smaller and delete your data. But yeah, now that you have the extra ZVOL or the extra VDEV to provide more space at the pool, you can just ZFS set vol size equals larger size and then the, the name of the data set, the ZVOL, and it will make it bigger. I don't know how Libvirt will react to that, but I assume it will be fine um, and you'll be able to just go forward. Mm -hmm. Does it answer the rest uh, as well? So like once the ZVOL is bigger, uh, the physical device will have that space. And if that's being passed directly into your Samba VM, then it should just be a matter of growing the disk as if you grew it, uh, you know, if as if that uh, the libvirt command had succeeded properly. And then you just have to deal with the, the growing inside the VM. Mm -hmm. But if, uh, if the kind of volume you're creating with libvirt is more complicated, I don't know. I don't have the experience with Libvirt. Yeah, could be that it's um, that ZFS is not controlling the whole storage anymore, and Libvirt is doing something in there. Uh, right, but I assume because of the way it's doing it, it'll be fine. So I don't know. Yeah, I can't promise anything, but it should work to just change the size of the the vol size property. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, he writes, he closes with, as always, eternally grateful. Thank you. It's for people like you and receiving this backup. That's, that's why we still do this. Uh, we, we receive a lot of feedback and a good feedback that is. So keep it coming. Next one is uh, Paul with several questions. Okay, here we go. Good day, Alan Benedict and JT. First, in response to the notion of sad situation with Ethernet ports on modern laptops, one of you guys mentioned in episode 377, I have to mention that proper Ethernet ports are nor completely gone from modern laptops. I recently got Lenovo T15 and it was uh, had a built-in Ethernet. I run Linux on it with root on ZFS and native encryption. And it runs great. Which brings me to a bunch of ZFS questions. Uh, I'm using ZFS with FreeBSD for probably a decade, but it was always proper server setup with RAID on mirrored VDEFs and ECC memory. With only a single NVMe drive in my laptop, ZFS is set up there with single VDEF. Okay, a single disk VDEF. So question number one. How to use ZFS in this setup to protect from bit rot? I see two ways. The first is to set copies to two on the Z pool, but it has, well, halves the disk capacity. Yeah. The second is to split the disk to multiple partitions and build the RAID Z on them. Performance will be terrible if there is any other way to achieve bit rot protecting on a single disk. 
I don't know that trying to get bitrate protection on a single disk is ever going to be very fruitful because if there's bitrate somewhere on the disk, it's probably almost everywhere on the disk, especially with the way SSDs and NVMEs work with the flash translation layer. If the bitrate happens to be in the metadata that doesn't actually get exposed to you, that's, that's part of the, the internal NVMe uh, or SSD, then it could just give you the wrong data and so on. Um, so I don't know that copies equals two is really worth the loss there. And so you're probably better off just having a backup instead. Uh, it's really the, the right answer yeah. there. For my laptop, uh, my Lenovo uh, X270, I managed to get a small, uh, like a 42 millimeter NVMe that fits in the uh, 4G modem slot uh, beside the Wi-Fi card. Uh, to, it's only half as big as my NVMe, uh, but it lets me uh, back up. Uh, uh, basically, I actually have a ZFS mirror because my hard drive's partitioned because the other half has to run Windows in case I need to uh, access client software or something like that. Uh, so I have managed to actually mirror the NVMe to a second NVMe in my laptop. Oh yeah, that's great. Uh, but I would suggest, uh, you know, instead of depending on copies equals two on your NVMe, to just have proper backups mm. instead. External ones, yeah. Separate system. Question two. Seems there is widespread opinion that ZFS should be only used with ECC memory. Uh, in my case, 200 gig gigabytes of ARC data are sitting in memory for weeks. Uh, and uh, as my data might get corrupted, from the, from the best of my knowledge, ARC is not protected by checksums. What is your opinion on this matter? ZFS is safe without ECC. Um, yeah, ZFS is... Everything is always better with ECC, uh, but don't let the lack of ECC in a laptop stop you from using ZFS. In the end, ZFS without ECC is probably still providing you more protection than using, uh, you know, some Linux file system with ECC, because the Linux file systems, like the other file systems, have no data checksum at all, so they have no way to know. Uh, whether the data from the disk is bad before they put it in memory or, or whether the memory is bad. So at least ZFS without ECC stands a chance of detecting it, whereas other file systems don't, even with ECC. Um, so ECC is always better, but it's not required. Yeah, right. Uh, question. It isn't going to magically eat your data. Yeah, you're right. Question three. I put my music collection um, on a permanently plugged SD card formatted as ZFS. Not a typical use case for ZFS. The SD card can easily wear off by write, by many writes. So ZPool was configured with A time equals false or to off uh, to minimize the writes under normally read-only usage. The output from ZPool IOSTAT confirms that nothing is getting written to the SD card pool, but I'm not sure that IOSTAT shows everything. Is there anything else that can be done to minimize unnecessary writes? Well, setting it read-only. Right, since you're <laughs> yeah, so you can actually set the data set or even the whole pool as read only, uh, like just zpool when you zpool import it, there's dash o read only equals on, uh, and then if you ever do need to add more music to it, it's a little inconvenient, but you can export it, import it without read only, write your data to it, and then export and re-import it read only, and that'll make sure that you're never writing to it uh, by accident and wearing out the SD mm -hmm. card. Then the pure theoretical question four, imagine a mirror VDEF with one SSD and one spinning disk. What performance of such asymmetric mirror is expected to be? Uh, in his opinion, on writes, it should be slow as single spinning disks, but on reads, it should be as fast as an SSD plus a bit more. Does ZFS wait or an even query for data from both disks in a mirror with 
one disk's already returning data and the checksum is correct. Right. So on writes, it'll write to both disks. Because writes in ZFS are usually contiguous, like even if you're overwriting the middle of a file, it writes it to a new spot and it batches all those writes together. So as long as you're not low on free space, uh, you're gonna all your writes are gonna be in nice big chunks and the hard drive will probably be uh, very quick even. You know, you can do at least a couple hundred megabytes a second writing to a hard drive as long as you're not reading from it at the same time. So the writes will probably be not bad. For reads, what ZFS will do is when, a, say, 10 reads come in, it will give one to each of the two drives, one to the hard drive and one to the SSD. And then whoever's finished first, which will be the SSD, will get the third and then maybe the fourth. Uh, and then when the hard drive's done, it'll get another one. So latency-wise, it can cause it to be a little uneven because some reads will complete really fast and every you know, nth read will be a lot slower because it came from the hard drive. Uh, but in general, in aggregate, yes, you would expect to get the speed of the SSD plus a bit more. But in average, it's going to be closer to the average response time of the two uh, rather than the uh, the sum. Mm. But uh, on my previous laptop, my T530, uh, I did have a mirror of an SSD and a hard drive. Uh, and it was fine. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you for your uh, questions and the feedback at the end. Uh, good luck on your ZFS endeavors in the future. Uh, and next is Chris with a firewall question. Uh, Chris writes, hey guys, thanks as always for the show. I'm just reading what people really, this is just, yeah, thanks. Um, I have a question about ZF, uh, ZFS firewalls. Yeah, BSD firewalls. In IP tables, there's a function called mangle, which is for altering packet contents as they go through the firewall. In my case, I'm using it to adjust the TTL to bypass tethering restrictions on my cell phone. I'm in rural Missouri and my options are nearly non-existent. Uh, is there a way to do this in either PF or IPFW? I can set the default time to live for the machine the firewall is running on, but this doesn't seem to affect the firewall traffic. Thanks again, and I hope you both are well. I am. We are. And as soon as, as long as we keep out putting out episodes, we that's kind of our keep alive thing. <laughs> hmm. Uh, I've definitely used IPFW to match packets based on the TTL uh, in order to like add extra steps to a trace route or something. Um, I don't know that it easily has the ability to modify it in that way. Um, both IPFW and PF in FreeBSD have uh, the concept of a divert socket where packets that match a certain rule can be sent out to user space to be modified arbitrarily. Um, and I know that you can do some things in IPFW to set things about a packet. There's like, uh, I think, set fib and a couple other ones. Seeing if I can find them right here. Yeah, then we used IPFW, only PF. Um, yeah, of course, there are also rule sets, which are called set. So it's making searching a little hard. Yeah, so there's tag and untag. And there's some stuff about Bibs. Uh, yeah, so you can divert forward, mat, fancy stuff, reset, call out and return, unreach netcraft. Yeah, so there's set fib and set uh, the diffserve code. 
and you can set the maximum segment size and force reassembly. Does not look like there's a built-in functionality to set the TTL, although I imagine it wouldn't be that hard to do it. Mm. Um, and you could also do it with the divert stuff that I mentioned. Uh, and it does have the ability to match based on the TTL. Uh, it just looks like it doesn't easily overwrite the TTL. I'm not sure about PF off the top of my head, but um, it looks like IPFW can match on the TTL, but not modify it. Mm -hmm. um, but I imagine that wouldn't be that hard to add and that um, divert would also be another way to uh, accomplish that. Although uh, probably with a bit more of a performance hit, but I'm guessing that you're, you're not trying to do 10 gigabits <laughs> over your cell phone. Probably so, not. Uh, I don't know that the performance hit would really be problematic. Yeah. What else could he do to bypass his tethering restrictions? Yeah, I don't know what the rules are there. If, do you need the TTL to go higher or lower for this to work out? Yeah, good question. It's probably the, the restriction by the provider that requires a lower one. I'm not sure. Uh, if anyone else has done things like that to keep them uh, connected, uh, let us know. We'd be happy to um, link this to the show to um, connect the, the solution to the question. Um, feedback at bsdnow.tv, as always, your way to reach us. Yeah, thanks uh, for, to your question, Chris. Hope you're uh, also doing well and everyone else who send us questions and content or things to cover. We'd be happy to have more from you. And then we are producing another episode for you. Uh, that's it for today. Uh, we're done so far. Uh, I think soon we will have another interview coming up. So a little to tease that a little bit. Uh, we won't mention who it's going to be, but uh, yeah, just keep listening. Uh, <laughs> thank you, and till next time. <laughs>